your introduction and um, I'd like to greet all friends at the Thomistic Institute. Many good friends there, uh, Thomas Davenport. I, I guess he will be there, or at least he will follow the, the talk. And uh, I'm, I'm, I feel very lucky because I have the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite topics about um, science and religion, uh, but from the point of view of physics, and uh, so let, let me share my screen. Um, so this is the PowerPoint that I would like to follow. And uh, so the, the idea, uh, let me go directly to the outline of my talk. So before I, I explain the, um, the different parts of my talk, I would like to, to explain to you why I have decided to talk about this central religion dialogue from the point of view of physics and why I think that we live actually live in an exceptional universe. So there's one reason, the first reason is that uh, my impression is that this dialogue of science and religion has developed mainly in the field of biology, perhaps because of the question of evolution. So usually when you speak to, with a believer about uh, science and religion, so that usual topic is evolution, evolution and religion, the compatibility of evolution with uh, God's action in the world. But there's a second reason why I'm interested in physics. And the reason is the, uh, because I think that when, when we initiate the dialogue with a scientist, as a believer, so I have the impression that if we underscore too much uh, God's transcendence, maybe this is a non-starter for the, for the scientist because he thinks, okay, yeah, of course, well, uh, the, the origin of being and all that, but uh, you know, in science, I'm, I'm working with things that already exist. So I don't care too much about the origin of being. But on the other hand, if we uh, underscore too much God's action, it, it could seem that we are talking about the God of the gaps, so that we uh, turn to God whenever we find some problem in our scientific explanations, there's some gap in the explanation, and then we try to fill the, the gap with God's action. So I think this is the Sheila and Charybdis of this dialogue, and I think that we should be able to, to find some clue in nature, at least in nature as studied by physics, that point towards uh, this transcendent God that is also a personal God that is involved in, in creation from the very beginning. And, and because of that, it's also immanent in nature. So uh, as you may see, I, I want to talk about these four things. I, I, will, I will talk about two mainly ontological issues, the question of uh, the similarity of our universe from the thermodynamic point of view. I will also speak about the emergence of systems, complex systems. I think these two issues are mainly ontological. And then uh, I would like to shift to a more sort of epistemic issues that have to do with uh, the intrinsic duality of our most fundamental theory of, of nature, quantum mechanics, at least from the point of view of physics always. And also the question of naturalizing information, whether is it possible or not to naturalize information that's a huge topic, a controversial topic, and, and now information is one of the key concepts in, in this field of, of philosophy of nature and also in the dialogue between science and religion. And uh, well, in the end, I'll, I'll try to give you my, my own view, how I think that the emergence of immaterial knowledge, of intellectual knowledge, in the case of human beings, is the apex in nature, in, in a nature that evolves itself. Okay, so uh, let me start with um, the, the first part of, of my talk, the thermodynamic singularity of the universe in which we live. So I'll try not to be too technical, but I have to say some, some things just to, to introduce the, the problem. And uh, now in, in physics, we usually think of in terms of degrees of freedom. Now just think uh, how many degrees of freedom do we need to to um, describe a particle, well, six, we need uh, three degrees of, of freedom for its position and three degrees of freedom for its momentum, for its velocity. Now imagine that our universe is composed by n particles. So I need mm, six n uh, degrees of freedom to describe a specific uh, microstate of, of my universe. So I can describe that in a uh, abstract space that is called the phase space that should have six n dimensions and each point in this phase space represents a specific microscopic state of the universe. 
Now, um, so I, I can make a partition of this phase space of the universe. And now in this partition, um, so the, the microstates that are in the same box um, are related in the following sense. So of course they are distinguishable from the microscopic point of view, but they are indistinguishable from the macroscopic point of view. Just think for instance of, of a gas, of a, a very simple gas that I can describe macroscopically referring to uh, its pressure and its volume or its temperature. But uh, these macroscopic uh, magnitudes are compatible with many different microscopic configurations. So um, now with, with this idea in mind, we, we may understand the value of the definition of entropy that was introduced in the, in the, in the famous Boltzmann formula for, for entropy. So the entropy S is proportional to the log logarithm for technical reasons of the volume of the phase space uh, that is shared by all these microscopic states that are compatible with one single microstate. Now, um, so the, the idea is that, well, of course, if one microstate is compatible with many, many possible microstates, then I will have a huge entropy. So the idea of huge entropy is that many, many uh, detailed, different uh, microscopic detailed states of the universe are compatible with a single microstate. Now, let me move on and um, talk about the, the second law, the famous second law of the thermodynamics, the law of increasing entropy. So the second law says this, that the entropy is a non-decreasing function of, of time in a closed system. And now if we apply this to the universe, so the entropy of the universe uh, would be a non-decreasing function of, of time. So the entropy of the universe is always increasing. Now, again, think about the phase space of the universe. And now if, if we just think statistically, so the, 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 the likeliest possibility for, for our uh, specific state in the universe would be to, to remain in this partition that is, well, the, the huge partition with uh, that contains um, the, 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 huge, the, the hugest number of, of microstates. Um, so this would be the state of equilibrium of the universe, of course. But the point is that uh, we are not in this position now. So now corresponds to this situation. So we live in a microstate that corresponds to a moderate entropy. It's at a moderately low entropy. Now, what's the, the evolution of the universe? Remember that each point here in this, in this phase space represents a state of the universe. Now the evolution, if we think in statistical terms, so it, one would think that, uh, so the, the, the likeliest um, evolution would be one in which we go to uh, partitions where entropy is increasing. So that, that's the rationale behind the second law. And of course, the, the second law is saying that, so the entropy is increasing. But if we move backwards in time, if we think uh, what would happen backwards in time. So if, if entropy were just a statistical question, since the fundamental laws of physics do not distinguish between past and future, so you can change T and minus T and you would obtain the same laws, just think about the second law, the second law of motion of Newton. So acceleration is a second derivative of time. So time is is uh, can be um, changed to minus t to minus time. Then, if we were talking only of statistical reasons, so uh, the the situation should be that we come from uh, also a part of the universe with a huge entropy. So this going backwards would violate the second law. And since we think that the second law is something fundamental in the universe, so it, it, the situation is not this, it's not situation C. Actually, the situation that is uh, compatible with the second law is that we, we come from uh, a situation D where we start from a very, very low entropy, a very tiny entropy. So this is the past hypothesis. It, it is called the past hypothesis in, the, in, in this 
field of thermodynamics. And the idea is the Big Bang starts in a uh, situation of extremely, extremely low entropy, very tiny, tiny entropy. And actually, this can be estimated. There are some estimation. I, uh, I must credit Roger Penrose. This is discussed in his book, uh, The Road to Reality, and other books. But there's an estimation about the degree of specialness, of speciality of, 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 of the Big Bang at the very beginning of the universe. So this has, these are the estimates. So our universe is as special as one part compared to 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. So beware, this is not one compared to one followed by 123 zeros, but one followed by 10 to the power of 123. So this number cannot be written down and in the, in the actual universe. So if, if we, we had to, to occupy a space of one centimeter for each zero. So it, it's probably the highest number that we can find in current science. And in Roger Penrose's words, this is the most profound mystery of cosmology. So any, nobody knows actually why we have such very low entropy at the, at, the, at the beginning, at the Big Bang. So a pictorial representation of the, the pain that the creator should take in order to, uh, to find the right initial conditions of the, 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 the degree of specialness of, of uh, exceptionality of our universe at the very beginning. Well, um, so uh, just to, to finish off with this uh, discussion about entropy. So this is a small joke. We usually tend to, to think of entropy in terms of disorder, that it's right, but it's not the whole story. So we have a problem with entropy and uh, the problem is very well described with, this, with these words that one of the ends of the curve of evolution of the universe starts in a region of extraordinarily minimum entropy. Why? We don't have an answer for that. Why is that relevant? Well, that's relevant because it shows that our universe doesn't fit in the, in the, in the possible universe that we could have according to the laws of physics. Uh, multiverse, the multiverse theory, in a way, tries to solve this problem. Uh, speaking of many other possible universes, and perhaps ours, the actual universe we live in, uh, is just one of them. The problem with that explanation is that, as Liz Molin shows another physicist, uh, so that explanation, just uh, invoking the multiverse, fails to explain um, the typicality of the universe. In other words, it's no scientific explanation because a scientific explanation should deal with a, why our universe is somehow typical within the, the multiverse. But that's not the situation. The situation is that universe is really, really exceptional. Uh, if one looks at the huge amount of possibilities, as, as this uh, entropic number shows, and uh, so we don't have a good explanation for that. So let's move on and uh, let me talk in this second part about the, the emergence of complexity and uh, individual system in the universe that somehow is also related to the question of, of entropy, to the tiny entropy of the Big Bang. Now, perhaps you're familiar with this, uh, this picture. This is related to uh, Simon Conway's uh, Game of Life, uh, Conway Morris' Game of Life. So imagine the universe is this grid and every, every square represents um, perhaps a, a living system, a system that can be dead or alive. And uh, so in different iterations, so the, the, uh, the fate of the systems depends on a very basic microscopic rules. Actually, this game of life works with four basic microscopic rules. You can see the, the very beautiful videos uh, footage in, in, in YouTube explaining that if you introduce these four rules, then you can have an evolution that is really amazing. So you can have patterns, uh, the famous gliders, that they interact uh, among themselves, they build cities, they interbreed, they feed themselves. So the point is that the emergence of patterns, something that macroscopically seems to have 
um, its own story, its own life, actually uh, stems from very basic rules, four microscopic rules that have to do with whether you keep alive or you die, depending on the number of uh, surroundings of uh, living systems surrounding you, whether there is overpopulation or there are not that if there are too, too few uh, alive systems, then maybe you, you die be, because of starvation and well, these basic rules. Um, so I think this is a beautiful example of what we understand by weak emergence. Let me put you another example. Uh, this is a beautiful image generated by an algorithm with any computer can generate this image. It's related to the Mandelbrot set. And uh, so this, this combination of colors and this fractal structure can be realized according to, to very simple rules, uh, at least with rules that can be uh, written down with, with an algorithm and the algorithm runs in every computer. And I can obtain this image that uh, has some beauty in itself. Now, the point is that uh, this is the result of some microscopic rules. Now, the question is, Perhaps the universe, perhaps what we see, perhaps uh, all uh, living systems, all the complexity that we that we see in the universe, from from life to I don't know, um, the, of course the, the the artifacts that we human beings uh, construct, perhaps all that is just the result is the upshot of very basic rules, the fundamental rules of physics. And that's the idea that somehow is behind the scientific reduction and from, from the starting point of science of the scientific uh, project in the, in the modern era. Let me, let me give a definition. Uh, this is due to Franz Vilsek's Nobel Prize. is the, the author of the a theory for the quarks, the um, asymptotic uh, freedom of quarks, uh, explaining how quarks uh, behave uh, within the proton and, and nucleons. And uh, he gives this nice definition of what we understand by reduction. A complex object has been reduced to something simpler when we can show or make possible that the more complex thing can be analyzed into simpler parts and its behavior synthesized from the behavior of those parts. So that's the, the idea behind reduction. So we explain the, the, the whole, what seems to be more complex from the behavior of smaller and smaller, smaller parts. That's the idea behind reduction. So the question is, uh, well, if this is true and we can reduce everything and we have a fundamental uh, particles, uh, fundamental laws of physics, and this explains everything. So when we refer to systems, living beings, to plants, to animals, in a way, this is only weak emergence, so to speak, is like um, different ways of speaking or referring to complex organization of particles, but uh, it's, it's only that. So the, 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 the causal structure of, of what's going on is uh, at the, at the uh, lowest level, the, the, the level of physics. Now, the point is whether this works or not in the, in, in the world as we know it. Um, I like this picture because it's um, a milk, milk drop and it uh, hits the ground and it rebounds. Um, you see this beautiful crown with 24 peaks. Now, it, it's, it's, uh, one, may, one may wonder or one may ask, well, 24 peaks. Could I predict those 24 peaks just from the basic degrees of freedom of this uh, uh, milk drop from physics and the, the characteristics of, of the floor that is hitting this, this milk drop? Um, not so sure whether I could predict that. Or maybe you're familiar with this Bernard cells so Bernard cells are structures that uh, uh, emerge in, 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 a, in a liquid when I find, when, when we have some threshold in a gradient of temperature. So imagine I have here oil and it's been heated and uh, there's a gradient of temperature between the uh, bottom and the, and the top of the, of the oil. 
So this heating, this heat has to be dissipated. And uh, so the dissipation process initially starts with conduction, but there is a threshold in the gradient of temperature when conduction is not enough. Then I, I, I reach a new regime. There is a phase transition where the dissipation of heat has to be done through convection. And uh, there's this emergence of structures of pyramidal structure, like, like hexagonal structures that are the, 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 the optimal way of dissipating heat. So um, uh, complexity in nature has to do with the emergence of things that apparently they are really novel because they don't exist, these new properties, they don't exist at a lower levels at fundamental levels of nature. So when we speak about complexity, we are talking about different levels of description that are intertwined, of course, but they are different. So the microscopic and the macroscopic view. Uh, usually we are working in a very far from equilibrium situation, for instance, in these Bernard cells. So there's a gradient of temperature that is responsible, or at least partly responsible of the emergence of, of these structures. Uh, as you probably know, living systems are very far from equilibrium. So basically what, what all of us are doing, we are resisting the second law. So we are keeping our internal entropy low. So we are in order state. So to, to keep at bay the, the second law of thermodynamics and not dissolving into, into the, the universe. And when we talk about complexity, we are talking about the strong emergence. So new properties arise that simply don't exist at the, at the bottom level or at lower levels. So the point is that it seems very, very controversial that I could explain nature just in a bottom-up fashion, just building up nature from very basic rules from physics and, and, the, and the fundamental particles. If we turn back to our phase space, so in the, the, from, from the viewpoint of physics, what's going on also in, in, the, in, the, in the emergence of complex systems is that in this phase space, uh, there are some attractors. So attractors are region of the phase space uh, in which the system is usually stuck. So it spends most of, of its time in these special regions of phase space. So this is an attractor. So imagine that we are, dealing with the, with the weather, with climate. And so depending on the initial conditions, then I could end up with a rainy day or with a sunny day, uh, or with more probability with a rainy day than a sunny day. Perhaps in this last picture, this is uh, an attractor that it doesn't matter where you start from, that you will end up in this situation. So this is the, the, the final situation in, in which you will evolve. That, you will end up with, and it would be the weather in Pamplona. So it doesn't matter how the, the day starts, always ends with rain. But the point is that it seems that life itself, the history of life, this is a beautiful representation of how life uh, starts on, on Earth, and all this variation, all these new species that appear, thanks to evolution, these um, um, random variations in the uh, genome and, uh, and then uh, natural selection. So the point is, would, would it have been possible to predict the emergence of life just from the uh, fundamental particles and the fundamental interaction in physics? Or if you wish, just think about the typical interactions between the genes in a bacterium. So this is really complex and so there are there's a hierarchical structure of new things that, that appear. And um, so like um, uh, biomolecules and proteins and cells. So the point is, would, have been, would have it been possible to, to predict all this from scratch? So to build nature with uh, knowing um, the initial conditions and, and the interactions. So do we live in a um, deterministic universe where everything is determined from scratch from the very beginning. So it, it seems uh, quite far-fetched to, to say that because it seems that we live in, in, a, in a universe where new degrees of freedom appear. 
new degrees of freedom emerge, as is the case with life, is the case with the uh, increasing complexity that we contemplate in, in the universe. So um, let me summarize these two parts. My, my idea, the, the take home message is that um, we live an exceptional, in an exceptional universe because it starts, Big Bang has a extremely, a really remarkable low entropy. And it is this low entropy that allows for the formation of systems that can evolve and can reach new degrees of complexity and can reach also new degrees of freedom. And uh, in principle, they would be unforeseeable. They couldn't be predicted from, from, from the Big Bang. Okay, nobody could have predicted the emergence of life on Earth uh, with, the, with the numbers of the Big Bang. So it seems that there are more causes, there, there's more uh, causal structure in the universe that simply um, fundamental interactions and, and, and fundamental particles. So let's move, off, move on to the, to the third part of, of, of my talk. And I would like to, to talk a little bit about quantum mechanics and why I think that this is also a hint uh, regarding the special universe that we inhabit. Um, I'll, I'll try not be too technical, as I said, but uh, probably you've heard about the measurement problem in quantum mechanics. So what is this measurement problem? Well, the problem with quantum mechanics is that we live with a um, um, dualistic formalism. So for one, on the one hand, you have the evolution of uh, wave function. This is the um, Schrodinger's equation. The, here, the, the, the important quantity is psi, the wave function, even though nobody exactly knows what this psi is. So there is a huge controversy regarding the ontology of the wave function. So the quantum mechanics is really weird because in classical physics, in classical mechanics, we are accustomed to, to deal with magnitudes that have a direct representation in the world. So we speak about space, velocity, mass, time, etc., and so on and so forth. However, this psi is, is crucial in order to retrieve, to, to get some prediction for nature, even though this psi doesn't give us directly any observable. So what happens is that when we make, when we perform a measurement, so we actualize, we update this possible solution of the wave function of, of the Schrodinger equation, and only one of them gets real. Only one of them, uh, the one that gives us precisely the, the, the result of our uh, experiment is updated, is actualized. Um, so there's uh, the Born rule explaining the probabilities of uh, updating one of the possibilities. But my point is that we, we seem to live in a universe with, uh, at the fundamental level, we are having two very different processes. Again, this picture is due to Roger Penrose. So we live in a universe where uh, if you are not performing any measurement, so nature behaves deterministically following this uh, Schrodinger equation. However, when we perform a measurement, when we obtain information, then we have this reduction, this wave function collapse, that it's not a deterministic process, it's a statistical process, it's basically random. So, um, of course, very few physicists are, are happy with this picture. Um, if just because, well, you may think, what is special about a measurement? So, if you are, especially if you are materialistic or you have a uh, deterministic view of the universe. So you would say, okay, but a measurement is not fundamentally different from any other physical process. So why, when I perform a measurement, I have to change my description from this deterministic evolution to this random, for the, to, to this jump in the, in the wave function that I, it goes beyond my equation. It, it is random, it follows probabilistic rules. Why is that? Well, that's a very good question. And the point is we don't have, we don't have an answer for that. Take a message, we don't have an answer to a measurement problem. One of the biggest theoretical problem in quantum mechanics. So of course uh, it, it, it means that uh, 
we don't know how this transition from the quantum world to the classical world is 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 done we don't even know what is what is the border in where should we put the border within the quantum strange world of superposition of wave function where matter behaves like a, a wave and the classical world where we have uh, particles with definite positions and and velocities and and so on and so forth Niels Bohr in this border that nobody knows exactly where it is. Um, probably the, the most notorious example of this uh, conundrum between the quantum world and the, and the classical world is the, the Schrodinger's cat, this, um, this um, Gedanke experiment initially. So the, the idea is that if, if there is a fundamental distinction between uh, a Schrodinger equation and a measurement process that imagine that I have a box, uh, a closed box and a cat uh, within the box. And I have here some device and depending on here, this is some radioactive material and depending on the decay or not decay of this material, then there is some device that triggers a hammer and the hammer hits a vial with poisonous gas. So the gas is released depending on the um, random decay of this um, material, of this radioactive material. So according to the uh, interpretation of quantum mechanics, well, so we, we, we would have a superposition. So all these possibilities of the cat being dead and being alive uh, until the very moment in which you open the door, you open the, the, the box. So once uh, somebody opens the door, so all these possibilities are actualized, are updated into a dead or an alive cat. So hopefully an alive cat. Um, so this is really weird. And this is very, very uncomfortable for many physicists and uh, uncomprehensively so. It's, it's well, uh, but I think it's relevant for our discussion because it shows how there are some mysteries in nature that we, we, we don't master. So nature is, is probably weirder than we could think. Uh, there are some attempts to, uh, to solve this problem. Uh, one of these attempts is referring to the coherence that, of course, I cannot go into the details, but the idea is since in the classical world, we are dealing with many, many degrees of freedom. So we have many, many other particles. And so it's, we are not in the microscopic level. So in the interaction with many other particles, all these weird superpositions of dead and alive cat, uh, physically they don't make sense. So if this is the initial situation where I have four possibilities of dead and dead cat, life and life cat, dead and alive and alive and dead cat, it's a, a two by two metrics. So with uh, environment induced decoherence, the strange possibilities of dead and alive and alive and dead cat, so they shrink, they disappear, and I would end up only with the two classical possibilities of a life or dead cat. So the, this is um, a very interesting program. And of course, the coherence is, is something that we know that happens. So the coherence is the main problem that we have to, to develop uh, quantum, quantum computers because uh, so the coherence is lurking behind all these quantum processes. And it seems that it, 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 it turns everything classical. But from um, a fundamental point of view, uh, the coherence in itself doesn't explain uh, the measuring problem, doesn't explain the appearance, the emergence of definite outcomes. And uh, even what is more, more problematic, it doesn't explain that we see that we experience the world the way we do it. So why we see the cat or, or, or the, the classical objects in specific positions and not like waves could be another possibility that we experience the world like waves. That's one of the possibilities that it's allowed by quantum mechanics. But so we experience the world in a classical way. So, um, uh, let me let me go a bit in, into this problem because I think it's it's interesting for our discussion. Um, so this is a very basic schema for a measurement. This is known as a von Neumann schema of measurement, 
I have a system in state SI and I have some device and apparatus that it's ready to, to measure the system. And if everything works properly, and uh, there's interaction, then this, this apparatus, this device is able to, to point at some um, line marking I saying that the system is in state SI. Okay, this can be expressed mathematically with this evolution. So the idea is that I can always do this um, in, in quantum mechanics and I can avoid, if this is a good, a good device, I can avoid the uh, strange um, interference terms, the IJ terms. So I only have here uh, terms that uh, are with the same subindex I. It's just telling me that the, the, the device is going to measure, it's going to be in a state AI showing that the system is in state SI. Okay, but this is something uh, for the time being, it's, it's only formal. So I'm not saying exactly physically what these uh, magnitudes are. So am I referring to position, to spin, to velocity, to, to what am I referring? So that depends on the, on the specific measurement that I'm performing. Now, if I take to the, let's go to the, to the extreme, to the um, situation in which the observer is involved. So I have my system and my device, and I also have some observer uh, that will be in a physical state OI. And if everything goes smooth, then I will keep this perfect correlation between state SI so the system, the apparatus in, in the pointer state AI, um, the observer in the state OI. So all of them are saying that, okay, I'm able to say that the system is in state SI. But again, we don't have any clue about the physical meaning of this state. So this is just the formal, the, 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 the mathematical formalism of quantum mechanics. So we need some interpretation for these quantities. So what are these magnitudes? Now there's an so-called existential interpretation by Wojtek Zurek. And Wojtek Zurek explains that, uh, so I think it, it, it's, um, it's really worth to, to listen to his words because he, he poses a very, very important question. Why the preferred basis of neurons, so my, my physical state as an observer, is correlated with the familiar quantities that we see in the universe? So I need an explanation for that because I don't have in the formalism an explanation for that. If I, if I were dealing with classical physics, I would have an explanation because the symbols have a direct interpretation with, the, with my measurements. But remember that I have here something that is not directly observable. So I need an interpretation. So his interpretation is that, uh, well, evolution can explain that. So, and the reason is that our senses evolved to gain uh, information about the world. So to, to, uh, to refer to those magnitudes that uh, are more, Mm, um, stable. So uh, we evolved to gain predictability. Uh, in as much as we can predict the behavior of the world, then we survive. And that's why we, we measure the things that are more classical because are the most predictable. So as you see, the final, the final quote is classical reality can be regarded as synonymous with predictability. So that's his interpretation. Now, there's a confusion here. And I call this the epistemic confusion. And the confusion is this, that if, uh, if I'm referring to the physical state of the observable, so that would be something like the uh, neural correlates of vision. So this is the visual cortex, but this is different from the observer experiencing or knowing that the system of interest is in state SI. In other words, the, 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 in the formalism, when I'm writing down OI, I'm referring to a physical state that by definition is different from what I would call in, 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 current, in current jargon, 
Aquelia, my experience of seeing that the system is in state SI. So neurons, state of neurons are not directly the same that perceiving that the system is in state SI. And because of that, it makes no sense in the formalism referred to classicality or predictability because in the formalism, um, those are um, uh, meanings that have no, have no sense in the formalism. Um, the founding fathers of quantum mechanics, uh, Bernard Heisenberg, saw this point very clearly. And he, with Niels Bohr, explained that we need classical physics to make head or tails of quantum mechanics. To interpret quantum mechanics, we need the language of classical, classical physics or, or, or you wish of, of natural science. And, uh, and he said this for the very reason that if I wish to interpret the formalism of quantum mechanics and the formalism of quantum mechanics is necessary to describe the universe, I still need to refer to my observation. So observation, classical observation, are a key ingredient to make sense of the quantum formalism. So this is a, a very, very interesting point because it's telling us that um, our most basic description of nature doesn't work without the information that comes from upper levels, like the levels in which human beings perform observations, perform measurements. So quite, quite interesting point. So uh, I think that I still have like 10 minutes. Uh, this is the, the, the last part of my talk. And I would like to spend some time talking about the uh, symbol grounding problem and the question of information and whether it is possible or not naturalize information. So um, of course, um, so it's a huge topic, question of information. There are many, many, many books on information and we live in the infosphere so if i might recommend this book by luciano floridi of oxford university the philosophy of information and he, he makes a nice nice distinction from different kinds of information what accounts uh, for information and what doesn't account for information for instance he distinguishes it within the relevant uh, semantic information um, that uh, makes knowledge so not not all information is knowledge knowledge needs relevant semantic information he speaks about human human beings as the those organisms that can develop a growing knowledge of reality quite relevant so we there's a growing knowledge of reality so somehow information relevant information uh, increases with human beings and his definition of reality that uh, is of less interest here. But the question, the, the important question here is the, uh, the symbol grounding problem. The, my point is, so it seems that information um, needs some material basis, but on the other hand, as human beings, we are able to communicate using symbols, using language, where this material, material basis can be can be moved, can be changed at will. So for instance, we, we, we have different languages. Uh, so we are, we are able to translate in different languages but we can refer to, to a tree with different words, but we all have this idea of tree. Now, Luciano Floridi tries to explain how this um, symbolic language could have emerged in nature or could emerge in artificial intelligence uh, just uh, because of communication between different devices. And of course, we need to start from what is called a zero semantic uh, condition that of course it is that no external programmer introduces surreptitiously this, this language uh, because that would be cheating. So the language should, should emerge from the, from the machine or the artificial intelligence or the system itself. So his idea is that imagine that I have some, some machine, some, some system that interacts with the environment at some, at some level of abstraction, LO1, LOA1. So imagine that it hits the wall and then uh, this machine turns right every time it hits the wall. Then the output turning right is a function of the environment. Now we could have a second machine 
in a, in a different level of abstraction, LOA2, where all these inputs now are the, the outputs of the initial machine. So turning right is associated with some symbol that are available in a reservoir of symbols in, the, in this machine too. So I would have a different mapping, uh, not only a function of the environment, but for every internal state of the machine, I could associate some symbol. So that, that's what this second machine does. And now if I combine two of them, I could have this working machine with two parts, one of them uh, creating these internal states in its uh, interaction with the environment, and the second part that properly creates language, creates symbols, and associating symbols to each one of its, of its internal states and interaction with the environment. Um, now, does this work? Is this a way of um, naturalizing information? Well, I think that there are many, many um, unclear things in, in, in all this schema. For instance, uh, well, this division of machine one and machine two that somehow is, is done by, by human beings. It, it, it's very unclear that this happens in a machine, that this could happen in a machine. But more importantly, uh, so there's a translation of internal states into symbols, but also of internal states in its um, interaction with the environment. So I should have some criterion to translate from an environment that usually is analog, many different possibilities and in a continuum of possibilities to internal states that are discrete. So that I will have a different language. So digital language where I do not have the continuum uh, that, that mimics the environment. So, so what are the rules for that, for that uh, translation? That's, that's very unclear. So the point, and I think that uh, I would like to stress this is that, um, so we deal with information in, in nature, but we human beings deal with information in a different way. So uh, let me explain in, in the last part, in the last minutes of my talk, what I think is the, the, the last complexity in nature and uh, it's the, the emergence, what I would like to call the emergence of immaterial or intellectual knowledge. So this is uh, quite classical in a sense. My point is that we, we can see this from an evolutionary perspective. Now in evolution, there are two basic concepts that um, are, are key for the success of the, of, the, of the system that is evolving. And it's persistent and adaptability. So persistence has to do with the identity, the capacity to keep its own identity. Otherwise, if we lose our identity, it makes no sense speaking about evolution because what does evolve the whole universe. But on the other hand, in order to keep the, the identity, you need to, to interact with the environment and being able to, to change a bit. So to have some plasticity, to adapt, to adapt to the environment, to, to find the right uh, place where you, you can flourish uh, as, an, as a living system. Now, my thesis is the greatest possible plasticity is that of immaterial knowledge. So we deal with information in a, in a uh, very peculiar way because we are able to constantly redefine context. So we are not stuck with a context. So we are able to, to see new information. So we are able to find out um, how can I, can I um, solve this problem in a different way with it? creativity, it's something very human. Uh, so it seems that in all this flux of information, and in all this adaptation, these processes, um, this is an idea by uh, Professor Gianfranco Basti. So there could be some sort of closure, he calls it a transcendent closure, in, in this hierarchy of information. And now information is able to lift off from matter. So it's like the um, uh, taking off uh, from matter of information. So that's what we call immaterial or intellectual knowledge. So we're able to abstract, so to take forms and somehow to, um, to get rid of, of, of matter, of the embedment of forms in matter in, in nature and get to know forms immaterially. So in, in, in this intellectual knowledge. 
Um, this is the classic definition of knowledge, this immaterial possession of forms of information in this case. So um, I think that here, that would be also material for future research. So if we want to understand the emergence of man, of human being from nature, compatible with a, a God's action, and I think that we should understand better these processes of self-organization of, of nature, this increasing complexity of nature. Of course, how information itself seems to organize in hierarchical ways. And uh, this is a field uh, where biology, theoretical biology is, 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 is really improving. As it's reaching very, very nice results, this hierarchical structure of information, living beings. The emergence of language, the emergence in, in, the, in the history of, 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 of nature, of, of the human being. Uh, well, how does language emerge? How this capacity of symbolization emerges? Um, so this is a, a good question to understand this singularity or speciality of exceptionality of human being in nature. And uh, I think that it, it would be also very, very worth to understand, well, how, how can we have a system like human beings that are able to make discoveries, but also to create new problems or new solutions to, to old problems. There's a very beautiful book by David Deutsch. It's titled uh, The Beginning of Infinity. And he simply says this idea that once knowledge emerges in nature, material knowledge, then infinity is reached because we are able to, well, to do many things that uh, make us, in some sense, independent of our environment. Okay. Um, it seems that we, we've gone perhaps too far from, from the title, we've moved away from the title, but I, I would like to recap now and, and say that in my opinion, all this singular uh, situation of the universe, of, of, of systems, of the description of, of nature and, and, and the emergence of information, of, of symbols, especially symbols, um, I think that all these singularities are pointing towards the big singularity, that's a creation or, or personal God. Uh, why is that? Well, I think that we live in a universe where epistemology and ontology are, are really intertwined. So we have um, uh, some epistemic organism in the ontology of the world, but we also have in all these um, in all this epistemic structure of the human being, um, some references to, to really extant systems. So to ontology, it's not just uh, uh, like uh, our, our thinking in the void. Or if you wish, I think this is also a beautiful picture by Roria Penrose explaining or, or representing the, the mystery of the three worlds. He's kind of platonic, and he speaks about the, this physical world. Part of it gives rise to brains, to human beings uh, that enable uh, these mental, mental features, this possibility of thinking, of uh, intellectual knowledge. And part of this intellectual knowledge is able to build up mathematics. And part of mathematics is able to deal with or explain the physical world. So, um, so this this picture is doesn't hold in itself. So um, it, it it's it's not self-sustaining. So there's something really weird in our universe when all these things can can happen. So uh, I would like to end with uh, two quotations, and uh, I think that what I'm pointing at in the in the end of the day is to the question of the universe our singular universe, our exceptional universe, but the, the, big, the biggest singularity of all perhaps is that we are able to understand the universe, what is called the intelligibility of the universe. Now, two very smart guys, two very smart people have uh, thought about this intelligibility of the universe. In a letter to Maurice Solovin, Albert Einstein explained this uh, comprehensibility of the world as a mystery, he spoke about the, the miracle, 
the, the success of, uh, of such a project, the project of science, presupposes this ordering of the objective world that could not be expected a priori. So why are we entitled to expect this intelligibility of the world? And uh, well, in the end of this beautiful quote, he says that uh, this is just a miracle and we must be satisfied to acknowledge the miracle, but there is no way forward without there being any legitimate way for us to approach it, this miracle. Now, compare this, this quotation with this quote by former Pope Benedict XVI, when he speaks about mathematics, about the correspondence between mathematics, science, and the real structure of the universe. And of course, the former Pope also had this feeling of awe and, and um, of being in a wonderful universe. And there is a profound correspondence. But then there is this inevitable question whether there might be a single original intelligence as a source of these two different kinds of intelligence, our subjective intelligence and the objective intelligence or ordering of the world. And in his case, this reflection on the development of science brings us towards the creator logos. So these different, different uh, answers to this big singularity, the liberty of the universe, that of course is no other thing than the leap of faith. So of course, we cannot overcome this, this leap of faith, but I think it is worth to, to show how these two very smart guys uh, answer to, to this singularity, exceptionality of our universe. I think I've spoken for more than 45 minutes. I will stop here and I will listen to your questions um, with uh, my utmost attention. So thanks a lot for your patience and your attention. Thank you very much, uh, Father Javier. Uh, so yes, we are a little bit late, but I believe we have still time uh, to ask at least two questions. The first uh, one of them uh, comes uh, from Pierre Naramini. I hope I'm not uh, wrong in pronunciation of your name, Pierre. So please unmute yourself, Pierre, and ask the question. Uh, thank you for your lecture. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, is the problem of measurement uh, limited to quantum scales? Uh, does it have any consequences to macro level measurements? That was my question. Thank you. Um, it's a good question. The, the short answer is we don't know. Uh, so there are different proposals to uh, to investigate what are the limits of quantum superposition. And uh, so the point is that uh, we are increasingly able to, to have interference or superpositions of uh, bigger and bigger molecules. As far as I know, I think that we are able to have superposition of molecules with 60 atoms. So it seems that we are approaching the macroscopic level. So one question is what's, what's the threshold at which um, classicality appears? So in some, somehow quantum mechanics is violated. violated. So we don't know, we don't know. Um, uh, so we, we don't even know whether we are asking the right question. So because one possibility is that everything is somehow quantum and so classicality is only um, like, um, like a shadow, like um, interpretation of um, quant the quantum level at a, at a different scale. So this is a, a very controversial issue and uh, there is current research on it, but uh, we don't have an answer for this specific transition from the quantum to the classical and, uh, and an answer to the measurement problem. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, so the second question comes from uh, Luca Settima, uh, Settimo. Please, Luca, unmute yourself and ask the question. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for your uh, presentation. Uh, I was interested in the last part uh, when you spoke about the role of uh, uh, information. Um, I, I, I was wondering uh, whether you can spend a little bit uh, some extra words to explain uh, what is 
the, so, so special of human being compared to non-human being in the sense that uh, I see sometimes uh, a continuity there, for example, with, with the notion of intentionality and agency. Also, an animal will try to give meaning around himself, itself uh, to search for food. Uh, of course, we have higher ability, but somehow there is, I can see a continuity there. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering about what you think about the information in, in that, uh, let's say, threshold between human and non-human. Thank you. Right, right. I, I, I thank you for, for um, um, raising this question and, and especially the word continuity, because I have, I think that the challenge uh, that uh, as believers uh, we, we are confronting is how should we explain the continuity of the human being in nature? So we, we, we come from evolution and, uh, and, uh, and that's it. And that's, I don't need to invoke uh, some, uh, I don't know how to call it, supernatural um, forces or whatever, uh, to, to explain the, the emergence of the human being. So there's this continuity, but at the same time, we're talking of a true apex in nature. I think that it's an apex. So it's continuity and discontinuity. And I agree with you on the idea that, uh, so these goal-directed activities or intentions are somehow present, but perhaps they are present in a um, proto form in, in, in not living nature, but of course it's present in animals and of course in, in, in bigger animals. So I think there's this goal direct activities, there are intentions. I think the, the way how I would understand this transition from continuity to discontinuity is this question of um, immateriality. So in my view, in the human being, what we are reaching is the point at which information can be dealt with without specific matter. So matter, um, of course, we still need matter. We still need neurons. We still are uh, the, the brain processing. But my point is that we, so this information doesn't have to be stuck to this piece of matter. So it, it's like, um, I, I, I would like to talk about the lift off of immateriality. And in my view, that's the apex that is reached with a human being in nature. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, well, I myself have several questions, but I will uh, let myself ask just one, and then maybe I will ask you, uh, Father Javier, to stay a little bit longer after we end the official part. But the last question, it will come from me, and it will refer to the emergence theory. Uh, so uh, how do you think what justifies us uh, from the scientific point of view and maybe philosophy of science point of view to claim that emergent structures are not epistemologically emergent but ontologically emergent? Okay, yeah, a very good question. So it's, um, I would say, um, I think it is right to pose the question looking at the scientific description and saying, okay, what, what, what am I able to do with this? And uh, what we know for sure is that, um, so with our basic description, with our laws and with our fundamental particles, whatever they are, we don't know whether quarks and leptons are the fundamental particles, we don't know. There are many things that we don't know, but imagine that we have the fundamental particles and the fundamental laws. So the question is that such procedure is still underdetermines what's going on in nature. So we need to add information. And in usually what we need to do is to introduce boundary conditions, or we need to introduce um, more information um, ad hoc um, to explain or to, 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 um, to provide a reason why this specific process is, is 
updating nature within all the possibilities that the, the, the scientific description uh, is, is offering me. So in, in, in science, we are continually uh, dealing with this information updating through boundary conditions, through uh, recourse to uh, symmetry breaking, for instance, that's a, a now current physics works in the framework of, of symmetries, but uh, at the end of the day, so symmetries are very good in order to, to provide a framework where everything more or less fits. But at the end of the day, I need to, to, to speak about uh, symmetry breaking because um, so particles are real and there are uh, symmetries that are broken in nature, for instance, in, 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 in weak interaction. So uh, my point is that um, we always need to introduce a different level of description in our basic theories in order to, to, to describe a system, a process, or whatever. In my view, that's a strong indication that emergence is truly ontological, that there's real novelty, because we don't know what are the degrees of freedom of the universe. So we, we come to know degrees of freedom as they update themselves, as they appear. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, it, it is an interesting answer. Um, so uh, once again, thank you for the lecture. Uh, thank, uh, I would like to thank all the participants, those who listened uh, to us tonight. And uh, one last time, I would like to remind you that the next uh, lecture in our series will take place on 16th of February. And it will be delivered by uh, Dr. Brian Green from Santa Clara University. And the title of uh, the next lecture is Big Questions and a Few Answers at the Intersection of Artificial Intelligence and Religion. So please feel invited and thank you for being with us tonight.